Jesus made seven statements while he hung on the cross, and we're walking through these statements one each week as we lead into Easter, and this is week three. In the first two weeks, our Webster campus pastor, Nate Miller, did a fantastic job walking us through weeks one and two, where Jesus made statements directed towards other people. He, in the first statement, turns to his Father in heaven and says, Father, forgive them, uh, for they know not what they do. In the second statement, he turns to one of the criminals hanging beside him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then in this third statement, he turns to his mother and addresses his mother. And in all of these statements of Jesus, we see that they carry tremendous weight and pack a punch for the authority and the power that they have. But in all cultures across time, final words, if you think about it, have carried some weight. And they carry weight today in our own families. I don't know if you know of or if you have family members who have uh, passed on from this life and they've made final word statements kind of on their deathbed, these deathbed statements that carry some weight. I know a personal uh, story that, that comes up in my family or extended family is, is a, a, a spouse who is passing away, an elderly spouse, and whispers to their kids, make sure you don't put your other parent in the nursing home. Make me this promise. And then when they pass away, the kids and the spouses of those kids are left wrestling with this tension of, do we honor those final words or can we make decisions on our own? And, and across cultures, this has been true. And in this statement of Jesus, he is making a powerful statement that not only impact those first hearers, but us today. And the statement is all about relationships and family. And isn't this what today is, is all about? It's all about family and relationships. I love parent and child dedication. It's one of my favorite uh, Sundays that we celebrate each and every year here at Northridge. And you heard uh, Pastor Drew talk about those three things uh, or three or four things that we uh, hold parent and child dedication dearly to. It's, it's thanking God publicly, honoring him for the gift of, of life and of children and for those parents being called to those kids to raise them. It's second, it's, it's making a statement that each one of those parents that were standing on stage of all of our campuses were saying, I'm making a promise to follow God, to, to follow Jesus with my life. And then the next one is that I'm going to raise my kids in that way. I'm going to teach them to follow Jesus. And then the last thing is they're asking for help. They're asking, they're saying in the context of community, I want help. And as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about the why we do parent and child dedication, I thought to myself, man, this really goes against the grain of our norm in our culture, right? Asking for help, thanking God, but doing all these different things, even following Jesus. It's go, it goes against the grain of our culture because in the West, in the U.S., we have two primary modes of thinking, a mindset of how we live our lives. And, and the first one is, is we operate and say, what's the most or who's the most important person? And all of us answer, me. <laughs> like, in my life, the most important person is me. I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, when I'm answering, who's the most important person in my life? It's like, well, obviously it's, it's me or, or it's my feelings, my trajectory, my decisions and my timing, how I want. And man, when I look inwardly at me, I realize how selfish I am and relationships expose that. When I got married, I, I realized how selfish I really was because I want to do my things my way in my timing. And then having kids, it got resurfaced again. Close friendships, that selfishness resurfaces again. And it's not just a me problem. It's a, 
all of us, we have that. We have that tension that we wrestle with that we want to do things how we want to do them, when we want to do them. And the second mindset is anyone or anything that comes against the first rule or the first mindset is wrong, right? Anyone who inhibits my feelings, my trajectory, my wants in my timing, they are wrong, but our, our culture, our world doesn't say it like that. The water we're swimming in doesn't really say it like that. They would say things like this, like anyone who disagrees with you, cancel them. Turn down the haters in your life. When, they, when somebody tells you you're doing something wrong or they disagree with you or there's a better way, just turn the noise down. Don't listen to, to those people. But what we're saying here is this, is that we believe that we are better together than we ever are apart. And what Jesus says in this final statement from the cross, this third statement is all about the context of reprioritizing others over ourselves. And this is what he says. John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. Near the cross Jesus of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now, I want you to notice in Jesus' most hour of need, he's on the cross, on his deathbed, and he's thinking of others. In fact, in the, very, the first three statements of Jesus from the cross, they're all outward focused. They're not inward. He's not neglecting his own needs, but he's taking care of other people. He's addressing his father. He's addressing criminal hanging on his right. And then now he's addressing those outside of him but, uh, and, and standing nearby the cross the, in the immediate context. But what I want you to also notice is if you were here for weeks one and two of the series, we really focused on, and the text really focused on all the negative participants uh, that were around Jesus. The crowd, Nate taught us last week that they were spewing venom, the words of hatred that they were saying to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. The religious leaders that mock him, the soldiers that steal his clothing. But here in this passage, John highlights positive characters that are there at the, at the scene of Jesus dying. Those who, in my, my imagination, their hearts are breaking. His mom, his mother's friends and followers of Jesus, and then one disciple whom he loved closely. So with that, I want you to notice or see who is with Jesus in his final moments that they're with him. They're not just there, but they're with him. They are associating with him in this moment. Look at it again, verse 25. Who's there? His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women that John highlights. Now let's talk about these women for very briefly. We have Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned in all four Gospels. She even shows up at the tomb when it's empty on Easter Sunday morning. She's there in John chapter 20. Mary, the wife of Clopas, the only time this Mary's mentioned, but she apparently was a follower of Jesus and a friend to his mother, which we know her name is Mary, the wife uh, or the mother of Jesus. And now if you're getting tired of me saying Mary, apparently that was a popular name because there's three Marys on the scene with Jesus and his final moments. And now if you weren't able to dedicate your child because you're pregnant or you and your husband are pregnant and you're having a baby girl and you're like, I want to name a biblical name. 
Here's a good suggestion. Maybe Mary. Maybe Mary's right there. It's three, there's three Marys in this one passage. But now let's look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's seen in all the gospels. She's seen in the birth story because she is pregnant with Jesus, with God. But I want you to think about Mary's journey from the beginning to the end of Jesus's life and the story that we know of her. A young girl who's engaged to marry uh, the man of her dreams, and his name is Joseph, and they're preparing for their wedding, and then an angel shows up to Mary and tells her that she's pregnant in one of the most strangest ways. But she takes it as, as God's word and goes about her life, and then they travel to another city, and she, then she gives birth to God in the most strange way, in the most strange place, in a barn where animals are supposed to be. And then shepherds show up to her and not only tell her that she gave birth in the most strange place in the most strange way, but that this baby would not just be God, but they'd be the savior of the world. That he would save the people from their sins, what they say in Luke chapter 2. And I would wonder, in my mind, I wonder if Mary wondered all the journey along each stage of Jesus' life from him as an infant, as an early toddler, as an early child, as a preteen, as a teenager, all the way along. I wonder how this is all going to end. I wonder how the saving is going to take place. And because the Gospels tell us that she treasured those things in her heart, like every mother does, right? Treasures all those moments in her heart. But I have to imagine that she wonders, how in the world will this saving take place? How is this all going to end? And then she's standing near the cross, Jesus, beaten, bruised, mocked, tortured, her heart literally being ripped in two. I wondered if she wondered, is this how it's supposed to end? Is this what they were talking about 33 years ago in a manger when they said he would save us? Because what I'm seeing looks a lot like defeat, not victory. But all of these women, I want you to notice their bravery, their strength, because there is no doubt in my mind that the mockery that was being spewed at Jesus was also getting backlash to them. Because they're the only faithful five that at least we're aware of that are not throwing hatred at Jesus, but they're there in bravery and strength, willing to be guilty by association, not willing to allow Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, to die alone. They're there, and with as much strength, as much courage as they could muster. They're there, willing to be guilty by association for the Savior of the world when everyone else is mocking them and mocking Jesus. Now, I don't want to downplay Jesus' mockery and the pain, the agony that he was going through because their pain and agony had no comparison to Jesus, no comparison whatsoever. But there is no doubt in my mind that they were not receiving something. There's probably snickering going on in the crowd, like they, the people saying like, they, they, you see those people over there? They think that he's wrongly being put to death. They think he's the savior. He didn't look like a savior to me. But in all of this, I want you to also notice who's not near Jesus, who's not 
willing to be guilty by association. Where are the other 11 disciples? Where are the guys who would say things to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your glory, can I sit at your right? Where are those jokers? Like, where are they at? Because I know, I know for me, I learned at a very young age that sometimes you got to be willing to be guilty by association, but other times you got to make the decision to not be willing. A story comes to mind when I was in kindergarten, I remember sitting on uh, the edge of the playground. We had this wooden um, thing that held all the pea gravel in. Like we didn't have the soft... Uh, mulch that the kids have nowadays. We had rocks, like little rocks that we were playing with, right? And I'm sitting on the edge of, of the playground with a few of my buddies, and we're, we're sitting there, and you know, like five-year-olds do, there were, there were some girls that were running by, and, and my friends that I was sitting with, you know, they liked those girls, and so the natural thing to do was what? Throw rocks at them, right? That's how they flirt. <laughs> I don't know if much changes as boys get older, all right, because sometimes they still throw rocks. Uh, but they're, they're kind of like tossing these pea gravel rocks at these little girls as they're running by and they're, they're doing their thing. And, and Miss Rita Dorch, she calls us all up to her and sends us to the principal's office. And I, I said, Miss Rita, I didn't even touch a rock. I didn't do anything. You saw me. And she said, sometimes, Daniel, you're guilty by association. And as a five-year-old, I had no clue what she was talking about. I was like, I was just sitting there. I did, I did nothing. But sometimes we have to be willing to be guilty by association. And the question for me is, is not male or female because there were four women and, and one man. The question for all of us that we have to wrestle with is in our lives, are we willing to be guilty by association in our relationship with Jesus? At your workplace, in your home, in your family, are you willing to be guilty by association or will you just be a silent bystander that's not willing to deal with what may come for following Jesus? And the model that we should follow after is these five faithful disciples and ultimately Jesus himself because I want you to see Jesus' heart for those who are with him. Notice his heart, his passion that is pouring out of him because he lives out the commandment to honor his father and mother. From Deuteronomy 5, 16, Jesus dying on the cross. What a son this mother has. That he's dying on the cross, yet he is concerned with looking after her and making sure that she's taken care of. Jesus, in all three of these statements, he is outward focused. Even in the most painstaking moment of his life, he's thinking of others. And in this moment, he forms a bond that is closer than blood. He looks at the disciple whom he loves, and he looks at his mother and says, Now, this is the relationship. Behold, woman, son, son, mother. And now, just as a a side note, Jesus addressing his mother as woman is not derogatory. In this, he is just getting her attention, and she she knew exactly who he was talking to. But I want you to think about what this would, the implications for Mary and this disciple in their life. Because Jesus had other brothers. Jesus had other earthly brothers that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born. We know these from the Gospels and the letters that there are at least three that we know of. James, Jude, and Joseph. But they didn't believe that Jesus was who he says he was, at least not until after he died and rose again. Because in John chapter 7, verse 5, earlier in the Gospels, it says this, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That they are like, you're, you're a lunatic, dude. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Savior. 
And as, as, as another side note, Jesus had sisters, but we just don't know what their names are. A safe guess, in my opinion, would be Mary. So... <laughs> And so the question is, though, we still haven't answered the question, who is this, other, this one other woman, and who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Because this will help us understand the implications for our lives as we're living out this final statement every day. There's one other woman that John calls it his mother's sister. Look, go back to John chapter 19, verse 25. Near the cross stood his mother, there's Mary, his mother's sister, and then the other two women that we've already talked about who they are. But who is the disciple and who is his mother's sister? Well, if we can answer this one question, it helps us understand who this disciple is. Go to Matthew's account of this very scene where he highlights three women. Matthew 27, 56. Among them were Mary Magdalene, check, we've answered that, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, that's Jesus' mom, because we know those are two of Jesus' other brothers, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Well, who is Zebedee? Well, Zebedee is the father of James and John, two disciples of Jesus. And if Zebedee's son's mother, James and John, right, if that is also the other woman who's mentioned in John's gospel, which is his mother's sister, Jesus' mother's sister, that means that this woman is not only his mother's sister, Mary's sister, but also John's mama. That means that John and Jesus are first cousins. Now you're like, why in the world (laughs) did John not just say that if that is the truth? Like, why, why does he have to be all obscure about what he's doing? Like, why does he name himself in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Why does it he just not come out and say, hey, it's me, John? And then why doesn't he also just come out and say, you know my cousin, Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, you know, you know him. Because, you know, his mama and my mama, they're sisters, we're first cousins, it's a big deal. Even after he died, he was like, now this is your mother. Even though Jesus, you know, he had three other brothers that could have taken care of her, but he just messed up the whole family dynamic. But he says, now this is your mom, take her into your house. Because Jesus knew, and he formed this bond that was closer than blood, that when he was exiting the scene from the earth, even though he would be buried for three days, rise again, and come back, and then ascend to the Father, he knew that what Mary would need is more than food, water, shelter, which those other brothers could have provided. She would need emotional and spiritual care for losing her son and the Savior, the one that she followed. And she knew that the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, believed in him as she believed in him. And that was more important to Jesus than this earthly blood relationship of his other brothers that did not believe in him. Because if you're in the family of faith and you have family members, blood relationship that does not follow Jesus, you get the dynamic. You get how difficult holidays are. You get how you celebrate the significance of of Christmas when for others it just may be stuff. The significance of Easter that is not just the Easter bunny and chocolate. You get the significance of those things when other family members, they don't necessarily get it. And Jesus got that. That's why he realigns this relationship. That's why he reprioritizes not only Mary's relational catalog, but also John's. He reprioritizes it because he gets the significance of it. 
And what I love in this is look at the last phrase of this verse in verse 27. From that time on, this disciple took her in his home. That he did it. He doesn't say, well, Jesus, hold up. I don't have a spare bedroom. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have it in the budget to feed another mouth for the foreseeable future. Like, I don't have that. Like, he doesn't do any of that. And, and maybe he had the space, maybe he had it in his budget, but I don't think any of that is relevant. I think what is relevant is John follows what Jesus says because Jesus said it. He obeyed immediate obedience. He just did what Jesus said because John operated by this phrase that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us or holds us close. If, any, if there's any boaters out here, you know what a propeller is, right? It's on the boat. It pushes you away from an object. But what, uh, to compel means to hold close. For Christ's love held John close. It holds us close. But we're convinced of this, that one died for all. That's Jesus. Therefore, all have died. That John got that. John got it. Because he was loved by Jesus and that love held him so close and then everything else in his life followed suit. It fell in its proper place in light of who Jesus was and what he had done. And the answer to the question of why does John not just come out and say who he is is because John got the fact that he's not the lead actor. He wasn't the lead actor even in his own gospel. That we read in our Bibles, gospel according to John or John's gospel, whatever the case may be in your, in your Bible. But if John was writing, it says, this is Jesus's story. I'm not the lead actor. So I'm not even going to tell you my name. I'm just going to give me a, a, a penman hand. We, we call this authorship humility. John even exercises authorship humility about his own mother on the scene when he could have been so arrogant about who he was and the relationship that he had, but he's like, no, no, no. I don't want anybody to miss who the lead actor is in this story and in my life. It's Jesus. Because he got this. We're convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all have died. And you may ask yourself the question, like, what does that even mean, all have died? That following Jesus, it's a type of death. It's us dying to our selfishness. It's us dying to our individual mindset that we may have. It's us dying to the fact of our sin and the love that we once had for the things of the world and being invited into God's family through Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. All of us are. All are invited into God's family through Jesus. All of us are invited to come in the way of Jesus, but that coming in the way of Jesus is a type of death. It's a type of death of us dying to our sins, dying to our selfishness and our vision for what our life should be. But I get it, you know, like we're, we're individualistic in our mindset about my wants, my needs, my priority, my perfect vision for my family. You know, and it's the water that we're swimming in. Some sociologists and researchers were curious about, well, what country out of all the developed countries in the world would be the best one, you know, to raise a family and to do the context of community in? And they studied 35 of the top most developed countries in the world. 
they, they ranked them in six different categories on a traditional A through F grading scale and then gave these countries an overall grade at the end. And there were only two countries out of the top 35 most developed countries in the world that got an overall grade of an F. And we were one of them. Because we, and it wasn't the fact that it's a, we're, we live in a bad country to grow up in or raise or do anything in. It's just the fact that we're so individualistic. And this way of Jesus is coming against the grain of our individualistic mindset. Because we're invited into family, into relationships where it's not about me, myself, and I. When we're welcomed in, we're welcomed in as a family member, as a son or a daughter, to follow the way of Jesus, to die to our selfishness, to die to our own vision of what our version of family looks like. And John got it. John got the fact that he was not the lead actor in his story, that he was just a supporting role. Because check this out, in John chapter 20, he gives us his thesis statement according to himself why he wrote his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. What he's written up to this point are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John got it. John saw Jesus caring for others, so he did. John saw Jesus inviting others into the family, so he did. John got that his vision for his life and how he wanted to do things was not the best thing. He knew Jesus was way better, so he submitted his will, his plan to God and followed whatever Jesus said. If Jesus said, do it, he did it even if it messed up his perfect picture of what his life was supposed to look like. So here's the big question for all of us to wrestle with and take home today. What is it that Jesus is calling you and I to that's going to take a little dying? That's going to take a little sacrifice to put someone else's needs in front of our own? Because we're convinced that one died Therefore, we all follow in that one. And that one is Jesus. Because here's the truth for all of us. Everyone has someone they can serve in the family. Everybody, all of us. And it may be in your own family. Parents, it's going to be your kids for a number of years. I know I have two kids under the age of two. There's a lot of serving that their mom and I do to them to meet their needs. There's a lot of serving that happens. But kids, you can serve your parents if you're, if you're old enough. Maybe some of you could serve an elderly family member that may or may not be related by blood. Remember, Jesus reprioritizes the blood relationship. It may be to your extended family. Maybe a friend. You may not have a lot of blood family, but you're welcomed into the family of God. So you got a really big family. Just look around. You could serve in the community in the context of a local church. You could get involved in the foster care system. You could care for your community group members. You could serve someone in that extended relationships. You could serve the world. You could be a part of refugee ministry, of, of caring for those who've been displaced. 
We saw on the news this week, if you watch the news very much, the crisis happening in Ukraine. There are missionaries and people from Poland just driving back and forth, picking up random strangers to take them into their home to help them get out. I, I was thinking about the ramifications. Like, what if I was there close? What would I do? And there's these people who are paying for gas just to, to drive until they find someone, pick them up and take them to safety. They're serving. They're thinking of others' needs instead of their own. When they could just bunker down and, and play it safe. But they get it. They got it that everyone has someone they can serve. So what is it? What is it that Jesus is calling us to, calling you to? That the question I have to ask myself, if, if I was the, the one that Jesus looked at and, I, and he asked me that question directly, if I was the disciple whom Jesus loved in this moment of, in history, how would the rest of that verse read? Would it read as it currently does that from that day on, that disciple took her into his home? He did it. He listened to the Savior of the world as he hung on the cross and used one of his last breaths to get out this statement. He did what Jesus said. What's Jesus calling you to? And will you listen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that's living and active and it's sharper than any sword. They could pierce our hearts and move us to action. God, I pray for the people listening to this message, God, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would just do a work and that would get the message into our hearts and into our hands, God, that this week, that every day, we would look for opportunities to serve others above our own needs. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.